0: what's going on guys and welcome back to this week's episode of let's just talk podcast i have literally just run in the door from my kids and i was thinking i was going to be late but um i really appreciate sam as a multi-return platinum recording artist and podcaster (laughs) guest for this show but um i know you're coming from a late night on your end of the world mate so i appreciate your time and thanks for making uh, it easier for me to get here
1: absolutely it's my pleasure as always um first and foremost You're clean shaven, it looks weird. (laughs) I know it's different. Over the last few years, I've essentially shaved once a year. I have this impulsive moment where I get sick of it. I shave and then I regret it because it takes me like two months to grow a beard again. So I'm about a week into that two month (laughs) regrowth phase. So what's, uh, what's new in the world? See, not a whole lot. Uh, I think since the last time I was on the podcast, I'm actually trying to remember the timing of that, but I'm now settled in one place. So I'm here in New York City, uh, which is different. Not, uh, well, actually for a year, I signed yeah, a year least, which is the first time I've done that, uh, as you know, in a couple of years. So I'm still getting used to it, not only like mentally, knowing there's no huge trip on the calendar coming up or change of scenery, But also logistically, essentially just committing to the city again, because over the last, I guess, two plus years, I've had one foot out the door. Every single place that I have lived or stayed, I've been in, I would say, north of 20 different apartments in the last two years. So, of course, when you're doing that, you're super, excuse me, you're super minimalist in the way you pack. You try not to put a whole lot of things in your calendar. You don't necessarily go all in on any community. But now that I'm here, for all intents and purposes, for the next year, I'm trying to push myself to say, okay, like, you don't have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. You're actually, you know, setting up shop until at least next spring. So I'd say that's, a, that's the biggest change. Why, why, why NYC? Why did it end up being that? Uh, I mean, kind of a lame answer, but it was largely, I'm not sure where else to live. I cannot make up my mind for the life of me. But I've lived here before. I know I like it, so it's a good placeholder in a way. So that was largely, again, I know that's kind of a lame answer, but it was largely the decision-making factor of if I can't actually make up my mind, and my wife, Vanessa, is so wonderful and that she deals with my indecisiveness every single day. Um, New York, again, it's fine for the time being. Uh, social opportunities, I would say, out of every place we have lived or could theoretically live it's going to be the highest for us in new york we have friends and family nearby not only in the city driving distance people are in town all the time i'd actually say now that i think about it out loud that's one of the biggest things that i like about living here compared to anywhere else is that for all the downsides it's the city where there's the highest likelihood of somebody being in town for example if you were to come to the u.s there's probably a short list of about three to five cities that you'd prioritize New York being one of them. So whether it's people coming from out of the country, people who actually live here in the U S there's just like a high likelihood of me running into people, uh, people being in town. So yeah, I'd say the social stuff and uh, the fact that it is again, a fine placeholder for lack of a better
0: term for now. It's interesting. Cause I remember when we we're having the conversation last time that you were tossing up, whether you'd go South, would you say in New York? Yeah. You know, I don't know if you um whether staying in London um was any like a, a potential kind of maybe um there but for me I thought just from my limited time that I have spent with you and kind of you know getting to know your personality you seem like the type of person though that would be inclined to go somewhere where it would be out of your comfort zone you're not someone to me who pick and you're like this feels comfortable and stable I know people like when you started saying that I'm like that's not what I personally would have picked you for. You could have just wound up in Johannesburg in South Africa. And you're like, this is what I'm going to do for a year. Like, why not? You know, I don't know where to stop just yet. So let's just give this a crack.
1: That's a great point. And honestly, on our short list, we had Miami, largely for similar reasons to New York. I've lived there before. I really liked it. The weather is dramatically better to me than it is in New York City. I love the heat, Uh, but also Valencia uh, in Spain because Vanessa and I lived there for a little bit at the end of last year. And to your point, Adam, that was largely out of my comfort zone where something as simple as going to the grocery store or, you know, going out for coffee was a challenging, a fun, but challenging social situation for me because Vanessa is much better at language in general, she's bilingual. So she's Brazilian, she speaks Portuguese, seems to pick up on every language dramatically quicker than I do. So it was, again, a fun challenge for me to go in while we were in Spain and say, Okay, I'm going to order the coffees today. And I'd approach the counter, and I'm already breaking a sweat, I'm turning bright red because I'm already proactively embarrassed <laughs> with my terrible accent and terrible vocabulary. So to that point, Um, again, Valencia was on the short list and they just rolled out without boring everybody to death. They just rolled out a digital nomad visa. Like a lot of countries have that make it very easy for people who theoretically very easy for people who work online to come stay in the country. And in the case of Spain, to my understanding, it's a year up front and then you can extend for five years and then there's a path to residency. So I was clicking refresh on that like every two seconds because I loved it there. It's it's such a cliche Amer- American thing to say, oh, I, I moved to Spain for all. And I loved it. I was abroad, but I really did. I thought it was phenomenal. But just at the time we had to make a decision, it was still a bit unclear as to what the digital nomad requirements were there were companies that said they had a clue what was going on, you know, different you know, kind of like law firms. And I just didn't want to fall for anything that wasn't legit. Cause again, it was kind of unclear. So I do think it's a strong possibility that after our time in New York, we revisit something in Europe or who knows where else. But uh, again, for now I'll, I'll look for ways to get out of my comfort zone here for sure.
0: Yeah. It's it, every single year around June. Um, I start getting the itch of wanting to live in France again, because we left on the 1st of June on Amelia's first birthday. And as Facebook and Instagram do so well, when you log on there goes, here's a memory from six years ago, whatever it might be. And every year, because obviously my posting of content dramatically increased when I moved to France, just because that was my mental shift. I was like, look, I'm going to take a year off but I'm a bit bored. I need to kind of do something. And that's what started the whole talking to my phone. Like I never really posted oh, anything okay. or documented anything before that. And so all of a sudden my Instagram feed started to fill up. And so that's where I get a lot of my memories from is that time. And I look at it and every time I just selfishly want to go, it's like, I just want to sell everything again and go like, it's just this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, it's weird because I know the girls would benefit from it. Even, mm-hmm especially Anna, because she's young and it doesn't, she's not really, I mean, she has friends at school and things like that, but she's not really settled or anything like that. Amelia, a little bit different in that she now has a, a solid group of friends at her primary school and she's settled, but she's the kind of person that we've moved her around quite a bit and she's resilient and she does tend to move well. But as she gets older, I can see it in her that she's just, you can see, Trying to make new friends is a very difficult thing, and not something she really kind of does well. And that comes from me. I'm I'm someone that I'm I'm set. Like I don't really want to meet anyone else in my life. It's just like <laughs> I have my friendship group. I'm sure you're a lovely human being, and that we'd probably get along well. But I just can't be bothered with the investment of time and energy of going through that process of kind of starting a new friendship kind of thing. I've had to get out of my comfort zone moving to WA because. It's a, it's a very isolating thing to your point where you say in New York, there's always someone in town. There's something that you can be going on. Over in WA, it's a very quiet place. We don't have a whole lot of family. I especially have no family, no friendship circles. And so for that very first year here, it was just kind of, I just got to bunker down. We got to make this work. And once we've figured it out, we'll go from there. Now that we are here and we've now bought a house here and done all these other things, it's like, okay, well, this is going to be a long-term. I probably should invest some time and energy into like talking to people getting to know people like and local get, community and yeah exactly with and so i kind of made myself part of the p and like the um, school committee here and you know, like starting to go out to some of that there's a dad's group that um is involved oh, here nice. and that's that's pretty cool to kind of, they they have drinks once a month or something like that if i can make it because obviously with amy being away sometimes i can't but if i can i even though it's on a Friday night. I'm like, I don't want to go to the pub on a third, like a Friday <laughs> night. Like, I, you know, I just want to go to bed or just chill out with the girls kind of thing. But it's like, no, nah, I, I better make that effort. And it, it's been a good thing. But to kind of get flipped back all on that is that, um, yeah, I just, there's a selfish part of me that wants to go, fuck it, girls. I don't care about your <laughs> happiness. I want to go back to France for a year. Like it was- You can make was, new friends. We're exactly, <laughs> yeah. I'll put you into an international school. You can speak English. You won't have to worry about- learning French and you can you know, just integrate into France again and let, let daddy and mommy have the time of our lives again, just um, yeah, partying it, it up in France. It's
1: funny you mentioned those two factors, both the kid element, of course, because I should say one of the reasons why I think I do have that itch to let me go do as much as I possibly can bounce around is because it's just me and Vanessa. We don't have kids, we don't plan on potentially turning that card for at least a couple of years. And we hear parents like yourself, who have the ability to travel tell us often, hey, it's possible to travel with kids like you you can do it. But it's a whole nother logistical curveball like the the I don't want to call it a headache but of course there are some headaches associated uh with traveling with the family compared to say just Vanessa and I so I think knowing that and having that in the back of my mind I I still plan on it I'm sure there are parents listening to this who will laugh at me I still plan on traveling as much as possible whatever that looks like over the course of my entire life with Vanessa even if we do decide to have kids but I'd say that's definitely in the back of my mind but to your other point Adam settling in one community and fully committing to it. I would say to go back to your original, original question, that was definitely something that pushed us a little bit toward New York as well is it's very easy. And this is a first world problem. What I'm about to say, so I'm rolling my eyes at myself proactively here, but it's like the whole idea of bouncing around from country to country and city to city. It's easy to romanticize and it seems very glamorous and it's incredible. And I'm I'm not ripping on it at all. Obviously I love it. But at the same time, there is a lonely element in that if I'm in Valencia for three months and I get up to, I'm generous here when I'm saying a conversational level of Spanish, I'm talking, hi, my name's Sam and I like dogs and basketball, very, very little. <laughs> and then poof, you're gone. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll stay in touch with some people and you know connect with them online over the long haul. But for the most part, you're not really developing deep, deep connections when you are bouncing around um and without going on too much of a tangent is actually a book i really enjoy it's called how to live by derek sivers are you familiar with it by any chance no um derek to make a long story short sold the company at a fairly young age and it allowed him to a music company specifically and it allowed him to live as the book title suggests however he wants so he would agonize over every day similar to how, how i have poor vanessa and you know do i Do I live in a new city every week? Do I pick one street and just fully commit to that street for my whole life? Do I learn a new trade? What do I actually do? How do I spend my time? And the concept of the book, I believe there are 27 chapters, all very brief, and they all argue against each other. So chapter one is, you know, set up shop, you know, I'm going to make this up, down a cul-de-sac and fully commit to that cul-de-sac. Make sure you know everybody, know every nook and cranny, because that's how you get the most out of a living experience is being that intimately familiar, being immersed in a community, having deep social ties, etc. And then you, you finish the chapter and you go, yeah, that's how to live. <laughs> and then you get to chapter two and it goes, screw that. Do you know how much you're going to miss out on by not bouncing around constantly? And you get to the end of chapter two and you're like, well, that's obviously the way to live. And 27 chapters later, either you're completely confused in how to live or you have some clarity because <laughs> something stood out to you. But I go back and forth between those two chapters Often, both the highly nomadic experience as much as you can, as well as the one that kind of promotes the upside of establishing a set home base long enough and consistently enough to really immerse
0: yourself in the community. Because that's definitely something I have not done at all. It's it's interesting you bring that point up right now because I've literally just finished writing an email this morning that will go out to my email inbox next week, kind of thing. And it's I was having a chat with a client um, yesterday, and it's what sparked this thought to write the email. And she's like, I, I feel like I I want it all in life, but I feel like I can't have it all in life. And that kind of saying of you can have you can't have your cake and eat it too. In that you know you can't have everything you want in life. And I I pushed back on that, and I always have with this quote that I love is that you can have it all, you just can't have it all now. And mm. I love using that sentence because this concept that I have now struggled with over the last. No, not struggled. I think developed is probably the word I should use Um, over the last kind of six, seven years. Since we moved to France, I was coming off this extreme right side of 15-hour days, six days a week, no downtime, building a business, building a brand, building a career and thinking that's what I needed to have success in life because it would enable me huge potential of upside for income, that would then allow me security to buy the things I want, do the things I want, travel the places I want and do all those kinds of things. And then I completely burnt myself out and went completely to the left side and said, I need a year off from life. I'm going to go and live in France and do nothing for a year. And in that time of doing absolutely nothing, I completely lost all drive in life. I lost all will to kind of create and do things and I got lost and then I kind of said, you know know what, you need a purpose in life. You need to be able to get up each day and kind of have something to focus on. And that's when this whole concept, I I think the seed was planted to what I now have is what I'm still trying to figure out is this whole concept of balance in that you can have it all. You can have the life of a big career, a big um, business and do all those kinds of things. But you're going to have to make some sacrifices right now on some other avenues in life, be that relationships, family, your fitness, your health and well-being. It doesn't say you can't put some time and energy into them, but you have to take something off. You have to take the foot off the gas on some way, shape or form if you want that as your big goal. And then the flip side to that, if you really want to put some time and energy and effort into this current relationship you're in or your health and well-being or whatever it might be, it's probably going to have to mean that you're going to have to give up some of the the, the push you're doing for a career or the business that you're kind of doing at the moment. And so what is important to you at the moment, which holds balance for you at, at this moment, I guess is kind of an individual thing that most people would say, but it's kind of what I'm still struggling with, but hopefully trying to, do, I think, design some sort of talk. I really want to go, and become a public speaker in one shape or form, whether I'd go to seminars or I'm invited to a, um, you know, a conference or something, and I'm, I'm doing the talk and I'm a, a speaker at a particular conference, but I want to try and verbalize because I still can't do it for myself, but I'm chipping away with every email I write and every note that I write down on something. And I've got a, a, a note section in my phone that, To your point, I'm so indecisive. My own thoughts are indecisive. I'm like, I will write one comment that goes one way, and then literally the next day I go, okay, and as I'm writing, I'm reading the comment above, like, these are completely hypocritical to each other, (laughs) kind of thing. But I just want to try and help people because you just said it then yourself with the particular part of where am I living. But everyone has those unbalanced thoughts in their mind on every decision they have in their life. And I think it's what causes so much frustration for people because I feel like I should be doing this because this is what all my friends are doing. And it's like, well, they're doing that because they're also giving up this, this, and this, but you just don't see that in the background. And so, I don't know, trying to formulate some sort of speech, word, brand, product, service. I don't know. That's what I'm still kind of filtering about. And I guess I have the luxury in life that those 15 years of really, Ball busting work and just putting everything I could into my career has allowed me, let's call it two years of basically doing not a whole lot in Perth. It also helps that my wife is now earning a stupid income in the mining <laughs> sector, and it allows <laughs> never me to, hurts, it, Never it doesn't hurts. <laughs> hurt at all. That um, I can stay at home, spend more time with the girls, and kind of try and develop this thought process process in my head. But on the flip of that, as there always is, there's a the yin and the yang to it is I've found that I'm just completely overwhelmed by so much choice. And that, again, is a first world problem. Here's people listening to this and, Adam, I'm struggling just to get through the day to pay the next bill. I get it. But my struggle at the moment, at the moment, is just, I just don't know which direction to take this. And like, oh, would this be a better way of saying it? Is this a better way? But I think in that discussion, I think it becomes more humanized and people go, well, this guy, I thought, had it all switched on and was, you know, he's struggling to even kind of figure out what he's trying to do for his life and where to move forward. And I don't know if you call it a midlife crisis or kind of, you know, uh, sliding doors moment, but I'm just waiting for that door to open and I actively am doing things. And I'm not one of those people who go, well, I'll just hope and see what happens. Like I'm doing things and I believe that doors open and present themselves as opportunities when you're actively putting it. In. And I'm just waiting for that door to open. I don't know when it will be or how it will be, but well, hopefully something will kind of come, come to life at some point. Yeah, I don't doubt that. And it sounds like
1: you're almost collecting, this may be kind of a, a silly visual expression. It sounds like you're collecting the clay right now that you'll eventually be molding. And you kind of have rough drafts of what that final product will look like, what you're actually sculpting. Like you said, in terms of a message, the brand, the product, how you're actually helping people navigate this thing that you're currently navigating yourself, but just collecting those experiences. Again, maybe it's a silly analogy to say collecting clay, but I think you get the (laughs) general idea. Um, And yeah, no, that resonates with me a lot, especially the idea of you can have more things than you think, but there's going to be a short-term trade-off And there's a very good chance that you're going to have to I really like the word shelf, like you're going to have to shelf some of these things for at least a little bit. And then you can always revisit them later. Um, I actually wrote an article not to plug my own work, but maybe a year and a half ago, two years now, when I was feeling super overwhelmed, because if you asked me what I was focusing on at the time, I would have given you an incredibly boring and lengthy list. Oh, I'm actually trying to learn Portuguese and I want to get back into powerlifting and I'm trying to grow my business and I want my blah, 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 And I did a brain dump and I had like 30 things that I was, I'm kind of exaggerating here, Mm. but quite a few things that I was supposedly working on and prioritizing uh, and to steal a line, I heard, I'm blanking on where I heard it. That was the equivalent of running 26 marathons, but only running the first mile of each. You have all the fatigue, Mentally and physically, of running 26 miles, but you haven't made any tangible headway on anything in a way that's really rewarding, that makes it feel worth it. So, what I did at that time, and perhaps this might be helpful to people, is again, I started with a brain dump with all the I shoulds or I need to or I'm working on. Finish those sentences and get every single thing down that you were supposedly putting a dent in. And then to almost steal the, uh, do you know the Warren Buffett exercise that's right down? the 25 things you want to do in life, pick your top five and scrap the other 20. I don't know if he actually did that or if they just, they credit him with it, but that's beside the point. I recommend doing a similar thing with the things that you are focusing on in life. But again, it's not quitting on a goal. It's not that I will never revisit learning Portuguese, for example. It's, It's just not the priority right now. So you're almost putting in a little box to the side and you can eventually turn that card And the reason I clarify that is I think a lot of people have understandably a mental hurdle with shelving a goal because they feel like it's quitting. They feel like it's failing, especially if they poured some sort of whether it's like an actual resource, time, money, you know, mental capacity, et cetera. And then pausing on that again, it's tough to break away from a little bit. But if you just start again, jotting everything down, I'm a big fan of actual pen and paper, Mm -hmm. not your phone, not, well, I have a pretty good idea in my head. That's great. Prove it. Write everything down, get your thoughts out of your head, and then highlight the things that you feel like would be the most rewarding to you over, let's say, I don't know, a two to three year period. I think it's also very easy to think exclusively in the form of probably thanks to the fitness industry, four week sprints and six weeks transformations. And the next eight weeks, I'm going to overhaul my career and learn French. No, like zoom out a little bit, Because even if you have a goal that takes two to three years to pursue and ideally say you live another 30, 40, 50 plus years with that kind of math in mind you could still tackle 20 really cool things over the course of the rest of your life now obviously that's a bigger more dramatic example but i do think people get tied up in those two things one being unwilling to temporarily step away from a goal or just like narrow down what they're focusing on um, and then the other thing is rushing whatever that process looks like because as you just, as you just mentioned Adam you're what 2 to 3 years into trying to formulate this current message or thought so as cliche as it is it's not going to happen overnight and i think
0: taking that weight off your shoulders does make a dramatic difference Mm. and it's 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 again it's a, a weird thing that i kind of then push back on my own thoughts and some of the things you say there is that how much of what i'm aiming for has been influenced or planted into my head by an outside force that be the way I was brought up with my parents or be the, my friendship circle or the work colleagues that I used to work with and different things like that. And so I, I remember when we were deciding to take off for France is that the whole, the whole dream was growing, not growing up, but kind of when Amy and I kind of got together and kind of when we started formulating our future and yeah, I think this is someone I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And those kind of conversations you start having, it's the, the white picket fence the nice car out the front, the couple of kids, the dog, you know, the the same thing that I think most people kind of um, envision for themselves. But then I remember watching the minimalist movie Mm -hmm. and seeing that those guys talk about just how much we are influenced and marketed to day in and day out for consumerism. You got to have more, do more, want more, earn more. It's all about more, 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 more. And I remember watching that movie and then reading their book or, going to their podcast or whatever it was and diving deep into this minimalist world I'm like maybe everything I've ever wanted has actually been sold to me and it's not actually what I want you know this whole idea of the white picket fence it's in every single movie every single magazine not that magazines exist anymore but no growing up you see them in magazines sure, and yeah. I grew up in the typical family suburb household you know we had the, the, the house, we had the dog, we had the couple of kids, we had the, the nuclear family, as I think they call it, you know, the, the parent, you know. So um, it's those kinds of things that I then think, well, maybe that's not what I want. And then cut now six, seven years later, we've now bought that in quote dream house. And please do not take this the wrong way. I pinch myself every single day, waking up in this house that I can now call my own. But for as long as I can remember, I've never wanted to own property. Everyone's always told me, my parents included, the best investment you can have is getting a house because property always goes up. But I kind of started playing around with numbers when I heard that because I like to, okay, cool, prove that to me. Like mm-hmm. you tell me it's the best investment. It I just is. Property always goes up. I'm like, okay, cool. But there's a lot of things that go into maintaining a property, the actual interest on the mortgage, the rates, the... A door breaks, a tap break, like all of these things cost money, but people only look at I bought the house for a hundred thousand yeah, dollars. Mortgage
1: first rent. Mortgage and now it's rent. A million
0: dollars. It's 10 times the property value. It's like, okay, cool. But and so I kind of started, and yet here I am now owning that home and I love it. But then I think I've made a lot of sacrifice. Like we liquidated our entire share portfolio. Every safety net we had is now gone. And I've never not had that. And it's not like we're living paycheck to pay and like, we're still all right. We're doing fine kind of thing. But if something really major happened, like God forbid the kids got sick or we had someone break into the house and steal a hell of a lot of stuff and break a lot of things and all like, we're fucked. Like, you know, (laughs) like we don't have that nest egg of just like, cool, we'll make it work. We'll pay that bill. We'll just do that. Like we, we can't. And that mortgage keeps coming in. So I then think, have I just sacrificed everything that I've always wanted because I actually wanted a more minimalist life to get this dream of the white picket fence and their own home and da da da? But again, that's me, my head going from two different sides. The one saying you don't need to own a home, renting's fine. You get more flexibility. You can invest your money elsewhere. Have more flexibility with life. But then the other side, it's like, I really want to sell to my folks. You know, get in that cul de sac. You know, build that community. Yeah. Build those friendships. And so. Again, this probably is a podcast of us just sitting here going, "We have no idea what we're talking about. We're just <laughs> we confused. No idea. <laughs> Why are you even listening to this podcast? Click off now."
1: <laughs> no, th- this is another. T- you honestly, Adam, you just gave me like nine things I want to go off about. But to stick to the real estate side of things specifically, you know, especially Vanessa and I, again, living here in New York right now, where rents are per usual off the charts. People will say that to us often, like, "Why would you rent? You could take that same money and you could." Um, obviously put that into an actual house. Like if you look at the cost of a mortgage and if you look at the cost of your rent, you're exceeding the cost of a mortgage right now. But with all the examples you mentioned, not to get too numerical and logistical here, you know, say you need, I don't know, a new roof or your water boiler breaks or, you know, you put a new fencing, whatever that is, people don't then take that, the people who argue the hardest in my experience, I'll just speak for my own experience here, the people who argue the hardest and kind of shame renters the most do not take that amount. Maybe you spent, I don't know, 20,000 renovating your kitchen and divide that by how many times you, by how many years you're actually living in that home. And obviously for a lot of people, their current home is not their forever home. So if you take that, just this kitchen renovation that you think you need and you divide it and you add this to the cost, the true costs of home ownership. And I'm not saying renting is always the answer either. I'm just saying like you, Adam, I like to challenge the numbers a little bit. When the dust settles, oftentimes you end up in a better spot renting, because now that money that I'm saving, I'm sure a lot of people will challenge me here. So I'm opening the floodgates. But for myself personally, Vanessa and I's life preferences, what we're looking to do right now, the money we're saving on these theoretical, home, the true cost of home ownership. it's not like we're doing nothing with that. We're then reallocating that into other investments, into index funds, etc. So it's almost like, challenging the numbers and then tweaking them a little bit and then the other thing that I like you brought up Adam is the idea of I should I feel like I should I probably should because I read something recently and this will sound straightforward but I think it's valuable that every time your brain is saying I should that's not you wanting something that's you've been socially conditioned to feel like you should want or need that thing so take home ownership for example which is something that Vanessa and I talk about often when we kind of strip down like buying a house in itself and romanticizing that and the white picket fence. What do we actually want to get out of home ownership? And if we write down the list, and we have jammed about this actually fairly recently, as a wealth building tool, we wanna stop having shitty neighbor after shitty neighbor after shitty neighbor sharing walls with. And ideally it gives us a better chance of that happening. I know you can still have bad neighbors in a house, but a better (laughs) chance than an apartment building and we want no restrictions whatsoever on the types of dogs we have and how many dogs we have. So if that's what we're actually looking to get out of buying a home, the question for us to ask is, is there another living situation? In this case, say renting an apartment that allows us to get these same things. Now, again, by renting and saving money on the cost of true home ownership, we're now able to invest. We've gotten mostly lucky, knock on wood, with this current building and our neighbors. So that's kind of two out of our three main boxes. Now. The main limitation, and this could be a a podcast in itself, is the fact that we cannot have dogs in this apartment. So that's definitely a big drawback and something that is a huge life priority for us is having a gigantic pack of dogs. Uh, But yeah, just challenging. The main point here being challenging the shoulds, whether or not that's something you actually want or something that makes sense for you, or whether it's something that's almost been thrust upon you in a way. And then looking more deeply at, okay, let's say you do say you want this thing. What do you actually want out of it? So again, in Vanessa and I's case with the home ownership, as of right now, it's mostly three specific things, two of which we're able to get without having to tie ourselves down to one house specifically, because we still very much value mobility and minimalism. And to that point, there's another quote I like, and I'll end this tangent here, Adam. And that is, "There there are other currencies besides cash. So for us, yes, I'm sure there's, there's a real estate pundit who's listening to this who would tear me to shreds for everything I just said, and they'll go over the numbers and tell me why everything I just said is stupid, but what that does not account for is the enormous peace of mind that I get and that I have on a daily basis, knowing that if, for whatever reason, my apartment caught on fire, and I know you're not supposed to stop and get things, but bear with me for the sake of this analogy. If my apartment caught on fire and it was quick, you have thirty seconds to get everything that possibly matters to you. I could very easily do it, and I could, very easy, I could very easily start my life somewhere tomorrow, no problem at all. And so it's like there's no there's no currency that's associated with that, but that's tremendously valuable to me. And again,
0: I'll end that tangent here, but just my immediate thoughts on that. No, I mean that that's a re- that last point you bring up. I think is hugely valid that again, everyone boils everything down to monetary all the time. And it's like, well, was that a good investment from a dollar point of view? But I can't agree more in that the biggest push that came and I would still be a renter right at this very moment if the current rental crisis that's going on at the moment wasn't becoming such an issue. For my entire life, I've rented uh, and I've always just had this thought, okay, cool, if this rental doesn't work out tomorrow. I go and look at the, the classifieds and I find another place and I move in there tomorrow, like whatever, I don't care, but it was becoming, and we obviously had a place when we first moved to WA and have been, had been there for two years and we messaged them to say, we'd like to stay here again. We love this place. Realize that the rental market in WA was getting pretty crazy. We don't want to kind of have to try and move. Can we just get this locked down early? And the only reason we ended up started looking for a house is because the real estate agent didn't get back to us in a timely manner, and we're just like, mm, that seems a bit fishy. She's normally, she's normally very on top of things. They're like, uh, maybe we'll we'll kind of have a look around what else is available. And I, sh- and this this is true to my God word. I accidentally on the internet clicked the buy section, not the rental section. And so when I clicked buy three bedroom houses in the area we live in. Up came a few properties, and I don't know if it's like this in the States, but when you're looking at them online these days, they never put the price of what they are. It's just like contact agent, you know, kind of thing. It's just, it just doesn't show it up there. So I don't know if that's a law that will, is different in your world. Here, they don't have to put that price on there. Contact agent, and it's just a way to get you to contact them. They can talk to you and then they can kind of give you guides and things like that. But anyway, these couple of properties came up. The one I'm now living in was one of them. I went to the open house, took the girls and i remember walking in he's like jesus this is nice kind of thing and had a look around and said to the guys that oh, what's it going per week you know what what are we looking at and he looked at me and was like what the hell are you talking about and i'm like you yeah, know just i'm just kind of getting a guide you know we're in this kind of price range um, that we're kind of renting is this is for sale i'm like for sale but i could and he goes show me the like the the actual listing that i he goes yeah that's on the buy section not the rental section i'm like oh well, what's it going for? You know, like, what, what are you anticipating? from? He gave the kind of price range that the owner was kind of um, looking at. And I'm like, well, that's too much. As in, like, I can't afford that. So that's out of my price bracket. But I remember going home that night and just like, that is. And to push back on my own thoughts again, that was the dream home. I know we sit there and go, and we just had this huge conversation about, that's just been implanted it's been told that this is the thing that is the dream and what you know but then I push back on they go but maybe it is actually what I want like I do yeah. I do love a Victorian home which for us is like a 1920s home the brick veneer um the tin roof but then has been modernized inside and renovated inside and Amy and I have always said we'd love to do a renovation but I've shared with her so many times that I've had clients who have And people I've seen and you watch the shows and things like that are people who renovate a property and they either get divorced, kill each other, (laughs) or have some sort of major life crisis because of such a thing. And Ames and I have many things that we're similar on, but the things we're different on, we are like right-wing, left-wing politics on the extremes. It's (laughs) like, no, I am right. No, I am right. And there's no common ground between us. And I'm like, if we did a renovation, we would genuinely get divorced or kill each other. I have zero doubt in that whatsoever. And I don't have any want to kill my wife or get divorced from her. And so I thought, here's a chance to potentially get into what we would like to do to a home. There's a few things in here. I'm like, well, I probably wouldn't have chosen that color. I wouldn't, And now it's my home. So I can go and change that at some point if I want to kind of thing, but they're not unlivable that I can't, Oh God, I can't live a day with it looking that way. But I'm like, we have the opportunity to get into this probably cheaper than doing it ourselves because, again, I don't know where it is like where you are, but in construction costs have gone through the roof, supply chain of getting construction parts and trying to find a build or not, like it's just become stupid. And so I thought trying to find a house that's three, four $400,000 cheaper but has the ability to put three dollars to $400,000 worth of renovations into – I don't think I'm going to get this. I still think it's going to be better off doing it this way and paying a bit of a premium on top of it. So I remember going home that night and saying to Ames, I think I've found a dream home. And she's like, "What do you mean?" I said, like, "Well, I went to this open house. I thought it was for rental, you know, how I've been looking at other places since we haven't heard back from the real estate for the rental we're in." And she's like, "All right, well, I'm back." She was at work that time. So, I'm back in 2 days, like book a private showing and we'll go and see it. And then the moment she walked in, she's like, "This is it. We have to put in an offer." And I was like, this is what they're asking. It's so far above our um, our comfort zone and our, our actual achieving zone kind of thing. And anyway, went to the real estate agent and put in our lowball offer and said, look, this is what we can do. If you can make it happen, then great. If not, we're out. And he instantly came back and said, I know that's not going to work, but legally, I have to go to the uh, the owner and let them know. We heard back within the hour, I was like, nah, no, not a price we can do. I was like, shit. And then we're sitting there twiddling a thumb, still haven't heard back from the rental property. And it's like, what are we going to do? We need to find a place or we need to have an idea of what we're going to do here. And I'm lucky one of my best mates is a mortgage broker. And I rang him up and said, look, we did when we did the investment property that we bought a couple of years ago, I was like, you did this as a kind of, Preliminary things have changed. Amy's had a couple of promotions. She's earning a bit more. I'm still doing the same thing I'm doing. Can you just rerun the numbers and see what we can comfortably afford? Kind of thing. He's like, yep, no worries. Ran those numbers and it was a bit higher than what we thought. And I'm like, that's not where the real estate agent was saying, but it's a bit closer. So maybe we can make some things work kind of thing. So went back to him and said, look, here's a different offer. This is what we can do. Came back and said no, still. I was like, okay, you said no to us twice, but haven't come back to us with an actual number here. What's the number here? Like what's going to make this work today? Give us the number. So we at least have a number that we can work with kind of thing. And he came back and said, you do this. And that's what we can, we can make that work today kind of thing. And it was that kind of $50,000 more. And everyone I speak to, every client I went to, every person I asked for advice on it is like 50 grand over the course. Like if this is your forever home, even if it's not, Forever, forever, but it's the next 10 to 15 years. 50 grand in kind of repayments per month is gonna be just this infinitesimal kind of amount that you're never gonna think about, never gonna worry about. If it is the one that you kind of just get all those warm and fuzzies from when you kind of walk inside, then then just pull the trigger on it. I'm like, so I went back to the mortgage broker. So this is a long window, sorry, I really apologize.
1: <laughs> but I no, went back no, it's to the
0: interesting mor- to me. Yeah. I went back to the mortgage broker, mate, and I said, look, this is the number. Can you make it work for us? He's like, I can sure I can fudge not fudge things. I shouldn't put him in that. Like, he didn't do anything illegal. I just please, he, he's a phenomenal uh, mortgage broker and he does the job always above board. But he tweaked some things, did some things, and like, we can make it work. But what you're going to need to bring the table is this, like the deposit we had to bring and all that. And I'm like, shit, that liquidates like 15 years worth of investing into the stock market every single dollar we had saved and all these different things it would leave a little bit on the side and that's what i was sharing with before it's like we're not living completely paycheck to pay but a big thing comes about we're in big trouble kind of thing we just hope that no big thing comes about but it pretty much just liquidated everything kind of thing i'm like are we willing and are we prepared to make this happen kind of thing and it was just like yolo it was one of (laughs) those like it, it really was and i i know that's a stupid kind of cliche kind of like, yolo you know kind of thing but I, I remember looking at Ames and kind of we were just sitting there going backwards and forwards is this the right thing is it not the right thing what are we doing this is too much money da, 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 da. and i'd heard that comment so many times from so many people that every time they went into a mortgage they're like oh my god this stretches us so far this gets it out of 20 years later though they're like what were we were ever worrying about and it was that moment that I was like, "Fuck it." The worst case comes, and I'm not. I'm not. I can't say I'm completely immune to it, but I'm not so hell bent that if it all turned to shit tomorrow, I don't mind putting my tail between my legs and going, "We fucked up. Like we we certainly stretched ourselves too much. This didn't work out. We should never have bought this home. We had to sell it, and we had to go and downsize and move to somewhere or whatever it might be." there will be a little bit of pride that will kind of like, oh, shit, like I failed. I didn't, you know, but I'll probably get over that pretty quickly. And so that was the kind of thing that I was like, this isn't going to end me if, cause we've got a lot of cash invested in this cause we had to, we couldn't afford the loan completely outright. So we had to bring a lot of cash to that table. So unless the housing market completely shits itself and, our knock on wood like even if we have to sell everything tomorrow we still pull a heap of cash out of this and that was the kind of thing that kind of kept amy and i safe enough in our minds that it was like okay if it all turns to absolute shit we pull our money out we move on we put our tail between our legs and go all right we tried it didn't work let's move on kind of thing and so that's just kind of where we're at at the moment with regards to what an the incredible house
1: and- story! But I didn't, I didn't know all those details. That's fantastic, uh, and honestly, so many lessons in there too. The uh, what immediately comes to mind, you know, here we are talking about other currencies besides cash because you can crunch the numbers, and in a situation like that, yeah, there's probably a scenario where you're thinking, I am certainly stretching myself too thin. But if you're walking into it and immediately feeling that, ooh, like this is it, like I've never really walked into a property like this, and actually felt a way that made me challenge all my previous notions about renting versus buying and I'm willing to liquidate in a major way for this. And then of course having Amy's stamp of approval, excuse me, Amy's stamp of approval. Um, yeah, dude, I think that's incredible. Happy for you guys.
0: Yeah, and, and and thank you for that. And it's the thing that really makes me happy, even though I sometimes not sometimes I daily second guess whether we did the right thing. But the thing that you, you said that when we worked walked into this apart, um into this house, I'd never felt that as way well. apart from one other time which was another property we did rent which we had an opportunity to buy and it's one of those ones it's like that girl that got away you know kind of it was that mo- yeah. like that house that got away from it. we just couldn't make it work at that time that would have made us an absolute fortune it was a great like again it's not something I'll go back on but that was a property that we had that same kind of feeling but this property here, it's not only that day I walked in and like, holy shit, like you know that kind of this is just the most, and I will happily give everything I can to get into here. I have that same feeling every day, like while I second guess it and like, oh, did we do the right thing? Oh my god, or what are we doing? You know, kind of thing. But then my next thought, or when I wake up in the morning, or I'm sitting there eating breakfast with the girls or I'm, you know, and yes, I do have breakfast on a more frequent basis these days. I'm not the no breakfast guy anymore. But like those kinds of moments in regards to currency of what makes life happy for me is that I look around and go, holy shit, this is mine. Like we did this, we created this, and this is the life I'm giving to my girls. And I, I, I even push back on that. And again, this is going to be another contradictory moment in that <laughs> I, I certainly didn't grow up ever wanting like my parents we weren't wealthy but we certainly weren't poor we had the means to kind of do things and I can remember probably one to two times throughout that journey of my five years of age until 20 years of age kind of moments in my life where I can remember mum and dad stressing like I had that sense that Things are tough here, whether they were having issues in their marriage or they were having issues with work. I do remember dad losing his job for an extended period of time. He, fi- he, finally, he finally found work at some point, but there were a couple of moments in life where there was stress in that household, but not really. Like it didn't, like I said, we did well. We were middle-class, never went without. I always knew when my next meal was. Like I, it was well taken care of kind of thing, but I never had everything i wanted like you know i had so many friends who were much wealthier i had wealthier families that oh they had the new shoes at you know every second way oh gee, i wouldn't mind a nice new pair of nikes and go home and like mom dad can i have a new pair of nikes no nope. like it was like can't afford that we can't you know those kind of moments and yet i sit here and go my girls have everything and i don't know if my in quote struggles and again there'll be people sit there and go struggles sounded like your life was peachy like come to my life and say, and I get it, but like we, I feel like I'm giving everything to my girls and I'm like, is that doing them a disservice? Like I I learned from my parents from, if you want something in life, go and work for it, go and put the time and energy and effort into it. You might not get it tomorrow. You might not get it next month, but if you put the time into it and you earn it, it'll feel all that much sweeter. And buying this house was that kind of Nike moment in that I can remember again, this is a story, go back to childhood. I remember uh, there was a pair of Nike Hirachis. Remember Nike Hirachi? I do, yeah, yeah. So they were the shoes around. They had like a wetsuit material. They had no shoelaces. They were bright, bright, fluorescent blue, green, and yellow. I can still remember the shoes. And I was in grade two. So I would have been 10, I think you are, in grade two. No, maybe grade four then i was about nine ten years of age kind of thing you're in um,
1: fourth grade you'd be 10 here
0: yeah yep so yeah. around that pre that primary school of yeah, grade three grade four somewhere around there i remember seeing them advertised on a on the tv whatever it was kind of I was like i have to have those shoes and i remember mom dad can you buy these shoes and even back in then which we're talking 19 early 1990s they were $120 for a pair of shoes back then kind of thing. Mum, dad, you're still growing, number one. Number two, no, we're not spending $120 on shoes for it. I was like, but you can wind in my my birthday <laughs> present, my Christmas present. Like, I'll do it for the... Like, no, if you want them, go and get the money yourself. And at the time, I'm 10 years old. How am I going to earn money? Like, I don't have a, have a job, but I did. <laughs> I went to the next door neighbors. Can I cut your grass? Can I... Wash your car. Can I like? You know, can I get five bucks for it? Kind of thing. And day after day after day, I earned and I put that money away. I didn't go and spend it on lollies. I didn't go and spend it on just whatever the other things that I would have loved at the moment. Kind of thing. And I can remember having that hundred and twenty dollars and going to mum and dad. It was all in coins, and I've got this you know big garbage bag. <laughs> mum, dad, I think I've counted hundred and twenty one dollar coins in here. You know, kind of thing. And like, you earned it. We'll take you down to the shop. And I took a garbage bag of coins to the local, I think it was Foot Locker that we had back then, I put the 120 coins on, on the table and said, I'll have a size six pair of Harachis, thank you. And then I was the shit for the next month at school. Like I was so proud to be walking around in these shoes and I was showing them off. And they were. You know, I felt so good in that moment, kind of, I earned these shoes. And that taught me that valuable lesson to the point where now, when I walk into this house, I earned this. Never got handed this. I didn't get any money from my parents. They, you know, said, you want something in your life, go and earn it. And that's, you know, I feel good. But now my kids, I want to give them everything I can because I have the means to. I do say no to them on a on a on a basis here and there. But if they want something, I'm like, yeah, I can do that for you. Let's go. And then I sit there and go, am I, am I fucking them up for life? Like they're just going to expect that, oh, I want something. I just get it, kind of thing. And so again, there's that yin and yang moment, like, I want to give everything and we've got this dream life, but now is that ruining my kids for their future life? It's funny. We are what 50 minutes in now. And if
1: there's one recurring lesson throughout this entire conversation, it's that neither of us have any level of certainty with any of our decisions <laughs> no. and question everything. Um, but no, no, no. Then I want I love that story. I think a lot of those things make tremendous sense to me. And I hesitate to of course, comments and anything, parenting related because I know that's the number one sin uh, as a non-parent and no actual parent wants to hear it but from an outside perspective knowing you the way I do and then speaking from life experiences with friends who grew up with varying means I feel as though and again bear with me parents because I understand that I'm a non-parent and there's some things I'll never get until I actually have a kid that's so much of how your child ends up, like what their work ethic is, is what they see on a daily basis. So to use my own parents as an example, I, it sounds like very similar to you, Adam, we were not wealthy, like we weren't going on vacation every three months, but I certainly didn't grow up. Like I didn't want, I can't stress this enough. I did not grow up thinking, oh, we don't have money. We can't do anything. I was very privileged, very fortunate. Um, but I saw how hard my parents worked. So, you know, at any given time, my mom might have two, three primary jobs and then any side hustle she could, you know, my dad was climbing poles for the electric company, you know, working night shifts, things like that. So although, again, very privileged, I can't stress that enough. I had a, I had a wonderful life and still do. I'm not sitting here. Oh, what was me? I couldn't buy, you know. 48 pairs of shoes or go on vacation every two months or anything like that. Um, I think what I witnessed made a big difference for me. My point being, I feel as though from an outside perspective, that's what your girls will see, especially as they get older, almost putting two and two together. Like, Oh, we have a wonderful life. And it sure as hell didn't happen by accident. You know, seeing the way that you get after it on a daily basis, the things that you've done and actually to share two funny examples of how I mirrored my my own parents work ethic. Um, number one is I would actually set up an art store when family friends came over and family members came over. Do you know those kind of like, um, I don't know what they're called. The poster boards that you use for like a science fair that have like three main kind of mm-hmm. compartments. What are those called? Do you know? No, I, I uh, know the, what the you mean. Though, yeah. board thing, the poster yep. board thingies. and when we had friends and family coming over, I would I had one that I set up where I cut out the middle of it, almost like it was a storefront. And I would sit behind there and I drew a menu of, you can either have a pre-made drawing for, I don't know, $2 or $3 or something. And behind my quote unquote counter, I had a picture of like my own dog and a basketball player, things that I drew when I knew we had company coming over, or you could request a custom drawing on the spot For maybe five bucks mind you i was wearing a uh, beret the entire time (laughs) i was sitting behind this this art store counter which again it's a silly example but i have no doubt it's because of what how i saw my parents operate and the other example and this one's probably even worse and more embarrassing there is a band that i don't doubt you will not be familiar with called dream street have you heard of them by any chance can't say i have A far less famous and popular version of like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. So it was a boy band, but they just never reached those heights. But for whatever reason, a young Sam loved Dream Street. So I actually threw a concert, I say concert very loosely, at my own house and charged my immediate family members, I think it was a quarter a piece, to see me perform. I danced back and forth on like our fireplace, the little chimney area, the little ledge you can stand on. I just paced back and forth maybe lip syncing, I don't know, looking back on it. And I charged my family to come see my own concert. They had no choice. I set up chairs. And again, silly examples. But uh, my point being that I, I think I did a lot of those things because of what I saw. So while, although I had a privileged life, I knew it didn't happen by accident. And this is a 10-minute version of me saying, I feel strongly that your daughters will see the same thing. Even if they don't realize it now, I think eventually it'll click.
0: It, it's interesting though, because I do question that because yeah in their minds like i'm up at 3 30 a.m to start seeing clients and by seven o'clock when they start waking up i've seen three clients virtually i then get them all ready for school drop them off at school i then will come home i then tend to go for a workout and do whatever but then from lunchtime till kind of your two or three o'clock that's when i'll then write some emails follow up on things and whatnot and so my work life doesn't exist in front of them, and so if you if you were to ask my girls now, hey, what what does daddy do for a job? And it's like, oh, he talks on his computer. Like that's that's what they think I do, and so it's it's interesting because I do question that. I'm like, they don't actually see me it's work, a point. yeah, and so yeah. they obviously know that mummy goes away, but again, they don't see her work, and they don't see how hard she works because she's away on site for eight hours, but i uh, um, sorry, 12 hours for eight days in a row. But then when she flies here and back home, she has no work. It's not like a lot of the typical nine to five, where they'll see mum and dad go off to work, they come home, then they might have to have a phone call at night or this. Sorry, darling, I can't, I've got to do this. Go and have your dinner and I'll be there. Like they see that. And I remember again, my dad coming home late from work and not seeing much of him when he was going through the very busy parts of his life and mum grinding doing a very strict nine to five coming home cooking dinner did the whole kind of thing i saw that visually saw that day in and day out for 20 plus years straight whereas the girls they see mommy and daddy home when ames is home and it's like you know what i'm gonna pull you out of school today on a wednesday because man you don't need to go to school today let's go to the movies just because i want it like we're all home as a family and like ah. Oh. You're only in grade one, like it doesn't like if you miss a day of school, it's not gonna matter, kind of anything, you know. And we get to go to the movies on a random Wednesday kind of thing. I was like, like again, I, I feel so lucky to be able to do that. And I love doing that, and I love spending time with the girls, and but it's just then I go, Do they just think this is what life is like? And it's just like go to a movies on a Wednesday, you know, kind of thing. So again, to say back to you, it's like I don't, I don't know because what they see is a very a point. kind of guarded viewers. It's like daddy's up well before they even wake and even realize I'm doing anything. So yeah, I, I try and emphasize yeah. to them. It's like, no, daddy was busy today. Daddy <laughs> did. That dad works. Things. I swear he has a job. No, <laughs> um,
1: yeah, that's a great point. And obviously something that I guess I'm not even, again, this is the non-parent. I mean, not even thinking of that word generationally speaking, you know, I grew up thinking of my dad. If, if you, th- If you were to challenge me right now and say, quick, picture your parents working when you were younger, I'm picturing being in the car with my mom as we actually drove to work and seeing her in the office. And then I picture my dad with an actual hard hat on, like work, whereas you and I, obviously, you know, you having kids and maybe eventually me doing the same our kids get a little bit older, and it's quick. Picture your dad working. I don't know. He's on Facebook a lot, and it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I guess I guess the solution is just to make them uh, mow lawns. The first time they ask for shoes, and they get a little bit older, to send them down your street, and
0: so earn it yourself. Well, I've already I've already failed hard at that because my <laughs> my oh, girls God. love these um, um, light up shoes, and so when you walk on them, the the soles yeah. light up, and I mean. It's, it's silly to say like they they $25 kind of thing. Like they're cheap and nasty from like a Kmart target type and thing. And it's, again, it's getting away from that minimalist movie of consumerism. It's like, eh, it's 20 bucks. I'll break, they'll break in a month's time, but eh, it's only 20 bucks kind of thing. And so like, oh, daddy, I've got a hole in these shoes. Can we go and get a new pair? Yeah, why not? Let's walk over. Like, and so it's like, maybe I should, it's like, no, you know what? You want those $20 going pair of shoes? Go and mow someone's lawn. Yeah, mow a couple of lawns and get back to her. You know, but, you
1: know, speaking of the minimalism thing... Oh, sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. That, but, no, um, I was
0: just going to say, it's like my daughter would then turns like, no thanks, I don't need the shoes that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I I don't like, need them that much. <laughs> okay, fair enough.
1: Meanwhile, a young Adam mowed 250 lawns <laughs> to get the <laughs> yeah. Um, But yeah, the minimalism thing, it's funny you bring that up in terms of feeling like maybe getting those shoes is a little anti-minimalism because... Like even the word itself, I almost cringe when I hear myself talking about minimalism because it can feel so culty and so competition esque. Because when I first quote unquote got into it, it would be, well, how many possessions do you have? And it's like, (laughs) I only have a hundred. And it's like, oh well, I can fit all of my things in a backpack. And it's like, I don't even need a backpack. I walk around naked. Okay, (laughs) like cool. It's just everyone beats each other. But the two fundamental questions that push you in the right direction in terms of using minimalism as a tool to make your life better and not as a competition or some arbitrary standard of living would be, um, does this provide some sort of funk? Like, is is it useful? Like, is it functional? Is there something I can actually do with this? And does it bring me joy? Do I find it beautiful in some way? So no, your daughter's shoes would not check the, um, the functional box perhaps for you. Cause you know, six months from now, either she grows out of him as a whole and whatever, but does it bring you joy? I would argue yes. In that case, seeing her reaction, seeing how excited she is when she gets to walk around as the shoes are flashing. Um, but yeah, with minimalism, that could be an episode in itself. Cause I am, I would say by most people's standards an extreme minimalist. I say this not to pat myself on the back cause again, it's not a competition, but I can fit 100% of my possessions in the closet, in my bedroom. Everything I own is in a closet, in my bedroom. And again, I say that not like competition-esque, but I've just run through that audit of, does it bring me joy or does it bring me use in some way? And for this current season of life, that's led me to own, again, what most people consider to be very, very few things. In fact, the first time um, I moved out of the home that I grew up in, and that was actually when I moved down to Miami, and I, I say this loosely, I furnished my own apartment. My dad came down and I think he FaceTimed my brother. And the first thing my brother said is it looked like it was a serial killer's apartment because I had a mattress. I had a beach chair that I was using as a piece of furniture because functional. And I had a couch. That was it. I had four cups, four plates, four utensils, like absolute bare minimum and again i think i took it too far at that point first getting into it because it did feel like a competition like you have this well i only have this and now i've started to swing in the other direction a lot of that of course comes with marriage where what am i going to tell vanessa that she's only allowed to have one elf it's, it's not like me Right, i wear one black t-shirt every day i can't be like vanessa there's this thing called minimalism but i need you to convert to it that would be absurd <laughs> but
0: but anyway. um, how, how does it work in the state so like do you have Furniture or the places you move into furnished. Like I'm just trying to think, like, you know, where you've moved yeah. around to so many different places, like the thought of packing up houses and taking the bear, taking the cat or that, oh, that'd that's that'd be not- terrible.
1: That'd be terrible. So most of our short-term stays, I would say between one to six months, have been through Airbnb, which is skyrocketing in price now. The like you see the nightly price, and it's I don't know, 150, 250. And you're like, oh, that's not too bad, you know, depending on, you know, what you're trying to get out of the trip. And then it goes plus cleaning fee, plus service fee, plus administrative fee, to nine hundred and nine. Like, dollars Okay, but yeah. historically, to answer your question more directly, uh, Airbnb, and because those are technically other people's homes, those are furnished. For the most part, if you're getting a traditional lease, you're just going out and finding an apartment by yourself, you are looking at unfurnished options. But being that we are here, most leases are a year we don't mind, we bought two couches, a few pieces of furniture, just simple stuff to make it a non serial killer apartment. And then if we do feel like we're gonna stay in this specific apartment for more than a year, I could see us, um, out of fairness to Vanessa, making this place a little bit more homey and even less serial killer-esque where we're adding a little bit of whether it's art or plan or um, not running things through that audit of, if I had to escape in a fire. Well, Sam, you probably don't. So it's okay if you buy a plant. Um, (laughs) But yeah, because if you do find a place here that is, again, this is my experience Oh, it comes furnished. You don't have to worry about that. They work that into the rent anyway. And oftentimes it's cheaper to just furnish it yourself. So it's like, oh, it's furnished, but it's 150% of the cost. So it defeats the purpose.
0: Yeah.